Write on with HPL, how to prevail in your writing journey. Episode three, the basics, how to write compelling characters. The Write On with HBL podcast is presented to you by Houston Public Library. Are you a creative writer? Have you ever wondered how to improve your writing or ever had interest in joining a writer's group? Maybe you've gotten a tough critique on a piece and are questioning whether the writing life is for you. These are all great questions. My name is Marilyn. And my name is Rachel. And here on Write On with HPL, we'll offer you some tips and tricks on how to prevail in your writing journey. Today, we are going to begin the first of a three-part mini-series on the craft of writing fiction. And in this episode, we'll walk you through the process of creating compelling characters. Every great story has a memorable cast. We'll cover agency, stereotypes, how to write strong female characters, and then finish the episode with some outtakes from published literature to give you a better sense of what works and what doesn't. Our next episode will tackle the art of story arcs, and the last episode of this mini-series is all about dialogue. We're going to guide you through these three key elements of fiction, along with some notable examples of what not to do. Ultimately, you'll come away with a clearer path for your storytelling style. Let's jump in. Remember how I shared in episode one that my protagonist, Edith, needs more agency? Writer Shauna Nequist defines agency in her memoir, Present Over Perfect, as agency is owning one's life for better and for worse. It is saying out loud, this is who I am, this is who I'm not, this is what I want, this is what I'm leaving behind, end quote. Just so, every compelling character, whether good or bad or in between, has both strong motivation and a narrative arc that advance the story. Think about Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games series by Suzanne Collins. Katniss was solely driven by the desire to protect her sister, and Katniss's mortal enemy, President Snow, would do anything and everything to protect his power. Or take the example of Zaley in Children of Blood and Bone, whose motive is to free people who use magic, people like her, from oppression. And one of the most obsessive, fanatic characters of all time is the infamous Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, who's willing to do anything to take revenge on the whale that humiliated him. More recently, consider Yariel in Cemetery Boys, who wants to prove to his family that trans boys can be brujos too, and more. Yeah, I think this is a good time to pause and ask yourself, do I know what makes my characters, at least my main ones, keep going? What makes them tick? What fires them up? What leads them to make decisions that drive the story? And when the going gets rough, what makes them choose to persevere? If you can name those things, that already is a good start. Furthermore, for your perusal, we've attached a link to a fillable PDF in our show notes. It was designed for Dungeons & Dragons, but the first two pages can offer you a lot of ideas for building your character's development and traits. And there are some different tricks you can employ to convey this information to the reader. For example, first-person narratives deliver this information in a pretty straightforward fashion, like Katniss's first-person voice in The Hunger Games, or Frank in Frankly in Love by David Yoon. But if you're telling a story in the third person, you can still periodically share the character's thoughts in first-person voice in normal font, like in Lewis Lowry's The Giver, or less commonly so in an italicized font like Susan Collins does very occasionally in The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Or you can have a different character directly ask your protagonist what their goal is. 
maybe it's not safe for your character to share their purpose with that secondary character. So maybe they'll lie or stay silent or come up with a half-truthful response. But give your reader some kind of clue to go on, even if the secondary characters don't find out. For a ton more detail on everything to consider when using first, second, and third person voice, as well as whether to make the narrator's voice omniscient or limited, there's a great article from Blog that we've attached to the show notes. Another good exercise is to consider the potential complexities that accompany a popular type of protagonist in young adult fiction often called the chosen one. The gist is that, like a messiah or avatar, these special people have been long foretold that they will liberate a suffering people group, and they often do so through their gifts and considerable self-sacrifice. The concept of the chosen one has been around for a while, long before our present day. In fact, some of the most well-known religious figures from history have been, and still are, revered and loved for their stories of setting right their society, the world, or even the cosmos. Chosen ones often profoundly illustrate a positive, benevolent universe in which evil and death do not have the last say. In our present day, there have been a lot of modern versions of the Chosen One narrative, and there are many to be found in Disney tales, teen literary fantasy titles, video game stories, etc. The concept is so popular that one term we might use for it is trope, which Merriam-Webster defines as a common or overused theme or device, which I think sums up both the ease and challenge of writing these kinds of heroic characters, and also their opposites, whom I'll name as completely evil villains. Because these characters, either completely good or completely evil, have been so popular in Western culture for so long, there are a lot of examples to choose from for shaping the characters you're trying to write. Now, dear listener, if you want to write a chosen one character or a completely evil villain, here at Write On, we're not going to tell you no. After all, you know your story better than we do. The challenge is, however, formed in the questions to ask yourself. How can I set my characters apart from the crowd of other writers' characters? How can I shape riveting characters that my readers will remember, etc., etc.? And there are exceptions to consider, too, if you do want to use this trope. Avatar The Last Airbender pulls the Chosen One type off successfully because the point is that Aang is the Chosen One, but he is not remotely capable of saving the world at the beginning of the story. He spends all three seasons growing into the character that he needs to be to stop the Fire Nation, so it feels earned instead of cheesy. It's also unique in that none of Avatar The Last Airbender's characters are white, which is the standard ethnicity for many modern chosen ones. The Lord of the Rings arguably also squeezes out of this hero saves the day stereotype, as Frodo was a chosen one solely because he was so kind and unassuming that he'd be able to resist the temptation of the ring better than the more powerful characters in the narrative. And even still, Tolkien gives this storyline a further twist because we see the terrible toll that being chosen takes on Frodo and that, in the end, Frodo is actually a failed hero. He doesn't save the world. He doesn't destroy the ring and it's Gollum who does, though inadvertently. For other ideas on writing chosen ones with great story twists, We've included a link in the show notes to a useful article from Tor.com. When writing your story, it might benefit your work if you can ask yourself, does my character need to save the universe for this to be a good story? Can they be awesome and complex without needing to be all-powerful? Etc, etc. On the other hand, Studio Ghibli, the groundbreaking Japanese animation studio, tells stories with morally complex characters. 
Almost no character is perfectly righteous or wicked. Even one of the main villains in Studio Ghibli's Academy Award-winning classic Spirited Away is willing to concede something major to the protagonist, and the rest of the so-called bad guys in the film go on to have amazing growth and complexity. Additionally, some Studio Ghibli films don't even have a clear antagonist. Many Studio Ghibli films have huge themes. Environmentalism, like the character No-Face being a river spirit in Spirited Away, and the entirety of Princess Mononoke. War, as in Howl's Moving Castle and Grave of the Fireflies. And even movies without an antagonist at all, like My Neighbor Totoro. When you're writing your story, ask yourself, what will make my characters really compelling? Do I need a hero or villain to pin everything on? And if so, where does that mindset come from? Would my story benefit from a different approach? Now for a bit more in-depth examination of how to write strong characters. There's a lot that can go off-key when it comes to writing strong female characters. Marilyn will list two particularly common tropes, what we call maybe what not to do, and then I'll share some of my favorite complex female characters. Marilyn, take it away. Hey, thanks, Rachel. One trope that sometimes raises our concern about female characters is that of the so-called Mary Sue. There's a lot of debate over this trope, even to the point where some people have made the case for similar male characters to be typed as Gary Stews. But just what comprises a classic Mary Sue character? According to tvtropes.com, quote, the prototypical Mary Sue is an original female character in a fanfic who obviously serves as an idealized version of the author, mainly for the purpose of wish fulfillment. She's exceptionally talented in an implausibly wide variety of areas and may possess skills that are rare or non-existent in the canon setting. She also lacks any realistic or at least story-relevant character flaws. Either that or her flaws are obviously meant to be endearing." End quote. Now, this is a pretty tough take on this type of character. And, arguably, there are some well-known Mary Sues in literature and pop culture, and some of them are really beloved by fans. These fictional females include most notably Bella Swan from Twilight, Tris from Divergent, Jean Grey from X-Men, and Rey from Star Wars. Some of you listening may love some of these characters, and some of you may be writing about characters with Mary Sue traits. We're not here to throw Mary Sue or Gary Stew out the window, but we would like to offer some things for you to consider as an addition to your connections to this type of character. For example, you can start by making a list of what you really enjoy about this character, what they have that resonates with you. Maybe it's their savvy intelligence or their fighting skills, or how he or she is the next door neighbor who sweeps the other protagonist off his or her feet. Then ask yourself, what flaws does this character have? Can I name more than one? How might they potentially contribute to the story development and growth of this person, if at all? You might notice how these questions are similar to our prompt for analyzing chosen one characters. Truly though, what Marilyn and I are getting at is twofold. One, it's okay to like or love all-around incredible characters, just like people love all-around amazing Olympic athletes. Two, however, some of the most flawed and complicated characters out there are the ones who can be the most inspiring. I'll share a few of these characters in a moment. And there's another big stereotype that we want addressed, the disproportionate mistreatment of female characters compared to male characters. This particular trope includes injuring or killing off a protagonist's mother or female love interest, 
to create immediate sympathy for the character. In the 90s, this came to be called fridging a character, and it typically happens to female relatives or love interests in order to advance a male character's motivation and story arc. Several literary thrillers feature female characters of kidnapping and or murder, such as the YA novels The Cheerleaders by Cara Thomas and The Silence of Bones by June Her, and also the adult novels Final Girls by Riley Sager, Watching You by Lisa Jewell, Before She Disappeared by Lisa Gardner, The President's Daughter by James Patterson, and When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean. Other pop culture examples include Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man and Rachel in Christopher Nolan's film The Dark Knight, as well as many female characters on shows like Criminal Minds, Arrow, and The Flash. For more on the origin of this toxic trope, you can find links to a Wikipedia page about the women in refrigerators and a Vox article on fridging in our show notes. We're not saying writers can't injure or kill off important characters, and actually in our next episode we'll discuss how to kill off characters well. Our concern is really about making sure that we're always asking ourselves the why behind our plot points. In the meantime, let's hear from Rachel about some refreshing examples of well-written female characters. Ooh, yeah, there are definitely some complex female characters out there that I'm thrilled to share with you. There's Lady Cryer, the title character in Nina Varela's Cryer's War, who struggles to become the ruthless ruler that her father expects her to be, but her natural curiosity and benevolence don't fit in well for the AI that rule over humans. And in Girl, Serpent, Thorn by Melissa Basher-Deust, the main character Soraya would do anything to remove the curse that made her poisonous to the touch, even if it means putting her family and kingdom in danger. And one of my favorites, whom Marilyn also loves, is Joe March from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Joe is simply one of my favorite characters in the classics. She's a middle daughter in a family of four girls, and she rarely fits into the mold of a polite 19th century girl. She's more likely to be found covered in ink from writing stories than wearing a stylish hat or dress. She's witty and ambitious, and often too prideful for her own good. Throughout the novel, we get to see Jo grow from a fiery, spirited girl to a confident author who balances her love of her family with her passion for writing. Far from shying away from Jo's faults, Alcott crafted a book where readers love Jo in spite of all her rough edges. That's really helpful, Rachel. Like we said in episode one, the more you read what's out there, and the more you educate yourself, the better your writing will become. Writing complex characters isn't just important for writing female characters, but also for writing characters who might have a really different background than you. That is to say, writing diverse characters. Characters who have a different race, ethnicity, dialect or language, sexuality, religion, politics, culture, etc, etc. Rachel and I have a lot of thoughts on writing diverse characters that we'd love to share, but we're going to talk about them in a later date, because otherwise this episode would be twice as long. Yes, hang tight for that conversation. But in the meantime, Marilyn and I have compiled some actual quotes from published literature to give you some ideas of how to write characters. Fellow writers and readers, listen in. And now, for a segment we're all highly excited for, Notable Quotables. In this first example, which is from the young adult novel Dumplin' by Julie Murphy, the protagonist speaks in the first person. 
I don't have to wear a dress to work. There's a pants option too, but the elastic waist on the polyester pants wasn't quite elastic enough to fit over my hips. I say the pants are to blame. I don't like to think of my hips as a nuisance, but more of an asset. I mean, if this were like 1642, my wide birthing hips would be worth many cows or something. This description fits two functions. It tells us physical details that ground us in the story, such as the character's weight and her outfit, but it also tells us about her sense of humor and her confidence in her appearance. We get a lot of voice in just one paragraph. This paragraph also places the character's clothing size as outside the standard uniform pant size. It's a very subtle setup for the main conflict of the novel. And here are two third-person examples from The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall, since this book has two main characters. For the character of Flora, also known as Florian, this is from page two. Come on then, Florian, Rake said. Time to earn your britches. It had been Rake's idea. The name change, the men's clothes. Being a slip of a girl may have been tenable in Crandon, but it wasn't here on the Dove. Not among these men. In taking this man's life, Flora could start a new one. Her life as Florian. Show them, Rake whispered. Not just the passengers, as was Florian's official charge, but the other sailors aboard the Dove. They needed to see who this child was, the man this girl had become. Rake could tell from the solemn nod Florian gave that he understood Rake's words exactly. The child stepped forward, and though he was small-boned and skinny from strict rations, the passengers fell silent. The long silver dagger in Florian's hand shone like the moon in an otherwise black night. This moment in the book tells us a tremendous amount about the character Flora or Florian. Flora had come aboard this ruthless pirate ship, the Dove, as a skinny and desperate girl. Now, to fit into the harsh sailor's life, she needs to become a man like the rest of the crew, so she has to don a new name, new clothes, and perform a rite of passage in front of the crew and passengers alike. This character moment tells us both who Flora was and who Florian needs to be. It's an interesting moment, especially to occur in the prologue of the book. You're thrust right into the middle of Flora slash Florian's journey, and the author gives you just enough information to stay afloat. Next, we have the character of Evelyn, page 7 from this same book, The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea. Evelyn washed her hands again. The telltale sand under her fingernails stubbornly resisted the fine soap from cork that her mother, the Lady Hasegawa, had imported especially for her. Her mother claimed that only a foreign soap meant for rice paddy farmers could possibly conquer Evelyn's dirty fingernails, since her habits were far too coarse for a good imperial girl. It was a rude thing to have said, but more so because the lady said it in front of her lady's maid, who was from Quark. And sure, maybe digging about the shore near their home looking for shells was not a most ladylike activity. The whole coastline was black from the filth of the Crandon port. Crandon was the capital of the Nippon Empire, and nearly every type of trading vessel passed through her waters. But it was not so dirty that lovely pink and white shells could not be excavated by those with the patience to do it. Again, this example tells us a lot of different things. We learn that Evelyn is a wealthy girl who doesn't follow her mother's orders and prefers to wander along the beach to find beautiful things. 
We learn that she and her mother don't get along and that her mother is definitely classist. We learn a little about the port city where Evelyn and her mother live. This is only half a page of text, but it teaches us about multiple characters, their relationship to each other, and the setting all at once. It's a great example of character and world building in tandem. And now we have two quotes from Neil Gaiman's outstanding award-winning novel, The Graveyard Book, because Marilyn couldn't be satisfied with just one. <laughs> yes, I love this book so much. These quotes are about characters who aren't the protagonist, and Gaiman uses different techniques to give you a strong sense of what they look like and what their motives are. First up is a side-by-side -side description that contrasts two characters on page 18. The man Jack was tall. This man was taller. The man Jack wore dark clothes. This man's clothes were darker. People who noticed the man Jack when he was about his business, and he did not like to be noticed, were troubled or made uncomfortable or found themselves unaccountably scared. The man Jack looked up at the stranger, and it was the man Jack who was troubled. This dual description uses multiple techniques that are effective on so many levels. Most of the sentences are short, heightened intention. It's as if your eyes are quickly glancing from one man to the other and back again, like you're sizing them up. And it's this one upmanship that heightens our suspense because you don't know much about the stranger, except that he intimidates an otherwise intimidating man. And just maybe, we might root for the stranger, but we have to learn more about what his motive is, what his business is, before we can breathe a sigh of relief. Which, not to spoil much, you gradually will come to understand. And that's just in six sentences. And here's an example of world building through a description of a minor character's motives, also from the graveyard book, on pages 20 to 21. From the shadows, the stranger watched Jack until he was out of sight. Then he moved through the night up, up to the flat place below the brow of the hill, a place dominated by an obelisk and a flat stone, set into the ground dedicated to the memory of Josiah Worthington, local brewer, politician, and later baronet, who had, almost 300 years before, bought the old cemetery and the land around it and given it to the city in perpetuity. He had reserved for himself the best location on the hill, a natural amphitheater with a view of the whole city and beyond, which the inhabitants of the graveyard were grateful, although never quite as grateful as Josiah Worthington, baronet, felt they should have been. Choice words like obelisk, perpetuity, amphitheater, best location on the hill, no coincidence. Gaiman is showing us that this man is after greatness, but a greatness akin to those of ancient times like Egypt and Greece. He craves the gratitude and respect of a noble aristocratic legacy, that of a politician and a baronet and not a local brewer. Maybe some readers find him off-putting, and yet we wouldn't have the eponymous graveyard of Gaiman's imagination in this novel literally titled The Graveyard Book without Josiah Worthington's motivation for greatness and aristocracy. His self-importance and sense of grandeur literally built the world of the novel all in just a paragraph. So, these have been outstanding examples of great characterization. But here at Write On, we also care about walking you through some examples of less effective writing, just to offer some more things to consider on your writing journey. For an example from Midnight Sun by Stephanie Meyer on page 324, if we want a clunky example of character building, she writes, quote, 
At first, only one vampire emerged from the snow-dusted trees. She was the largest woman I had ever seen, taller than either Carlisle or me, with broad shoulders and thicker limbs. However, there was nothing masculine about her. She was profoundly female in shape, aggressively, forcefully female. It was clear she had no intention of passing for a human tonight. She wore only a simple, sleeveless linen shift with an intricately designed silver chain as a belt. It had been in another lifetime that I had last noticed a woman this way, and I found I was hard-pressed to know where to put my eyes. I centered them on her face, which, like her body, was intensely female. Her lips were full and curved, her deep crimson eyes enormous and fringed by lashes thicker than the needles on the pine bows. Her glossy black hair was piled into a generous roll on top of her head with two thin wooden rods carelessly stabbed through to hold it in place. First of all, this description contains a lot of adverbs, and the narrator Edward mentions how female the character is at least three times. Take this sentence. She was profoundly female in shape, aggressively, forcefully female. There are three adverbs, profoundly, aggressively, and forcefully, and two uses of the word female, but it doesn't actually tell us that much about her character, especially with the previous description of her as super tall and muscular, which are not typically feminine traits. Moreover, this tells us very little about her personality. All we know is that she's wearing a simple dress, but that could mean any number of things. All those words are physical descriptors, yet we know nothing of the character herself. Eye color tends to be overdone in literature, like the Midnight Sun example, when Meyer writes that her deep crimson eyes, enormous and fringed by lashes thicker than the needles on the pine boughs. To that, Rachel and I respond with a quote from the wonderful, over-the-top loving satire of teen literature, the novel Brooding YA Hero, written by Harry Duricio and illustrated by Linnea Gere. In it, the protagonist, his name is actually Broody, not kidding, explains that there are 12 common eye colors that characters get and, quote, you can learn pretty much everything you need to know about someone from their eye color. However, blue gets the longest description. He goes on to say on page 35, there are a wide range of shades of blue when it comes to eyes. For example, cornflower blue eyes belong to sweet love interests who are bubbly and joyful. My shining wild sapphire eyes show that I am intense and powerful. Many people have drowned in my eyes. Luckily for them, I have recently become a certified lifeguard in an attempt to save more love interests from this terrible fate. I have no idea what your sense of humor is, but that bit about drowning and lifeguards is so absurdly true that it makes me cackle. And it's so, so true that eye color is so often over-described in young adult books. The second example we wanted to share comes from James Patterson's YA novel, Maximum Ride, The Angel Experiment, which is the first in the Maximum Ride series. I wonder if some of the villainous characters, such as the Erasers, could have benefited from more development on Patterson's part so that their portrayal comes across as more truly menacing. First, listen to the narrator's brief description of the Erasers here in the prologue. There was one other school experiment that made it past infancy. Part human, part wolf, all predator. They're called erasers. They're tough, smart, and hard to control. They look human, but when they want to, they're capable of morphing into wolfmen, complete with fur, fangs, and claws. The school uses them as guards, police, and executioners. 
I think this brief snapshot of the erasers works okay. We, the audience, can imagine the pretty straightforward image of wolfmen with fur, fangs, and claws. But it's soon after this description that Patterson gives the audience an early scene with the erasers, and I think it's here that their believability begins to break down. We have here a swift plunge into a fight scene. Quote, In the next second, men with wolfish muzzles, huge canines, and reddish glinting eyes dropped out of the sky like spiders. Erasers! And it wasn't a dream. End quote. Page 14. This description of men who are part wolf, who also in this moment are dropping down like spiders, is a lot to process, visually speaking. It's confusing because we get the description more of their wolfishness than their humanity, maybe because we are supposed to be more afraid of their wolfishness, but that whole bit about spiders really throws some readers like myself off, because it's not entirely clear how to picture it. I mean, maybe it's presumed that all their limbs are outstretched as they're descending that makes them spider-like? This could just be me, too, but a name like Erasers conjures up little pink rubber squares for me, not something actually terrifying. But Rachel, in contrast to these bad boy characters, you said before the show that you had a positive male character you wanted to rave about, right? Sure do. Nick is the protagonist of The Extraordinaries by T.J. Klune, an urban fantasy novel about a fanfiction writer who's obsessed with superheroes in his town. Nick is a super endearing and flawed character who has a complicated relationship with his dad. Listen to this passage, quote, The table had already been set, plates and silverware and glasses of juice, and, of course, the oblong white pill with the cheery name of Concentra. Concentra will help Nick concentrate, the doctor had told them with a straight face. Dad had nodded, and Nick had somehow managed to keep his mouth shut instead of saying something that probably wouldn't be appreciated. Dad kept the pills locked up in a safe in his room. It wasn't because he didn't trust Nick, he told him, but he knew the dangers of peer pressure and he didn't want Nick to get caught up in the world of drugs and dealing them under the bleachers on the football field. Thank you for not letting me become a drug dealer, Nick had said. I felt the pull toward a life of crime, but you saved me. Pages 18 to 19. Like our great examples from earlier, Clune packs a lot of information into a concise few paragraphs. You learn that Nick has some sort of attention-based neurodivergence, and you learn that he's got a super dry sense of humor that he sometimes has difficulty containing. You also learn that his dad is what some might call overbearing. After all, the opening pages of this book are about Nick writing superhero fanfiction and scrolling through his Tumblr. He's hardly the stereotypical drug dealer. Still, the author gives us a ton of information about two very different characters here, along with a sense of tension in their relationship. He builds upon that throughout the book in a way that's funny but real. I definitely recommend this title to fans of Rainbow Roll or Becky Albertalli. And now, close us out, we have a writing challenge for you. Pick two characters, with one being a major character and one a minor, and draft a description of each one. You can go the physical observation route, or maybe sketch a glimpse of their thoughts that will reveal their motives. How will these descriptions advance your story and the world you're building? Also, please remember not to go overboard with eye color and adverbs. And if you do this exercise, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post your answers to social media and use the tag, hashtag, writeonwithhpl to share your writing with us. We'd love to take a look and see what writing you're working on. 
Write On with HPL, How to Prevail in Your Writing Journey. Episode 3, The Basics, How to Write Compelling Characters. The Write On with HPL podcast is presented to you by Houston Public Library.